Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the Think Humanities podcast. Ellen Burkett Morris is an award-winning writer, teacher, and editor based in Louisville. Her fiction has appeared in a number of national publications, including the South Carolina Review and the Notre Dame Review. She has written and delivered commentary for NPR stations and is the recipient of several honors and awards. Her latest work is titled Lost Girls, And she'll be one of our featured authors at this year's Kentucky Book Festival. And this year, we're having our book festival at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington Green, uh, located just off Nicholasville Road on November the 6th. And I'll say a few more things about uh, the book festival and the schedule uh, from November the 1st through the 6th. But uh, the sixth is the big day when Ellen will be joined by, we're going to guess at this point that we're taping this, about 139 other authors, which um, we're uh, very comfortable with and uh, want to ensure that uh, all of our space uh, for the book festival uh, is following protocols uh, for COVID and social distancing and masking and all those things. But all of that information is on our website, Ellen. We don't want to take uh, time away from you uh, when people can go and read about it themselves. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here with you, Bill. Tell me about uh, Lost Girls. When you first began to think that maybe this is something that you wanted to do and uh, where these story ideas came from? Yeah, these uh, these stories were built over a number of years, let's say about 10 years. And in its original inception, I was writing a story, a set of link stories about a photographer from Boston who was traveling through the South. And uh, what I discovered in the process of writing the stories was I I ultimately had him settle in a fictional eastern Kentucky town called Slocum. And what I discovered was that his story was less compelling than the story of the women and girls who resided in the town. And uh, so I wrote some of these on my own. They got published in literary journals. I went through an MFA program, still with the idea that this male photographer was at the center. And then, you know, as I was sending it around, it was a finalist for several contests, but never got picked up. And so I thought, wait a minute, maybe my focus is a little bit off here. And as I went through the stories, I really noticed how very compelling the stories of the women were. So that became my focus. And then within the realm of of, uh, that, within the stories that make up the collection, the ideas came from a number of different places. I, um, the title story, Lost Girls, was really inspired by the kidnapping of Van Gottlieb in Louisville in 1983. I was 18 years old. She was 13. I lived in the neighborhood where she was taken near the Bashford Manor Mall. And it always stuck with me, that experience of of her disappearing and what that was like. And and, um, ultimately, I wanted to write a story that kind of provided a cathartic way to 
remember somebody who had been uh, kidnapped in that particular way. So the girl in the in the story Lost Girls is really complicated. She she's got a uh, parents are divorcing. Uh, she's got uh, you know she feels I think rather sorry for herself in many ways. At times, as she reflects on the kidnapping, she has very complicated feelings that involve. Uh, wondering what it would be like to be the center of her parents' attention. But ultimately, the story ends with her finding a way to honor and memorialize uh, the girl who had been taken. And uh, so that that was sort of the imaginative springboard for that story. Wrote it as a dramatic monologue, got a staged reading at Cincinnati's Arnoff Center, but really finally figured out that it was a it was it was a piece of flash fiction that sort of existed, you know, unto itself there. Um I have other stories in the book that come from other places. I've got a uh, uh my stepsister Jonna Walden is a librarian in Lexington, and she started telling me about family folk traditions, and she happened to mention to me the idea of sin eaters, and this is an idea that, this is the idea that somebody usually less well-off will be paid by somebody who is better off to perform a symbolic act where they come in and eat a corpse cake that's placed on the body of the deceased person. And it was such a mind-blowing idea, such a really unusual idea that I kept it in a file for 10 years before I was finally able to figure out how to build a story around it. And so, uh, so I wrote the story Inheritance, which is about a young girl whose family uh, works for the uh, owners of a coal mine and who uh, gets asked to be a sin eater for the mother of these two brothers who now own, own the coal mine and who has been uh, repeatedly assaulted by one of the brothers. And uh, so she walks into that house and she's asked to do this symbolic act. And, and at the very same time, she knows that she's actually carrying the child of one of those brothers. And so she's looking for a way out of the system that has exploited her, that has asked everything of her, uh, right down to the huge act of symbolically taking on their sin. And so the story became a story about how she was going to try to attempt to find her way out of that circumstance and, and what her options were. Um, really difficult story to write, a story that took me in places that I didn't anticipate or really even want to go. Um, and yet uh, I worked my way through it. And I think what resulted from that without giving anything away was uh, very powerful. So. so let me ask you a couple of questions about the research that went into uh, sin eating. Uh, uh, is that a, um, I've, I've never heard that term before. And um, uh, what, what did you find out when you began to look into it after uh, you learned of the term? Yeah, that it's a very old tradition that comes from England. And so, you know, when when English and Scottish people settled in Appalachia, and, you know, and, and uh, they brought with them these traditions, uh, you know, and, and then, in fact, it was uh, 
I mean, the funny thing was, as I was looking into it, just to discover that it was actually a, a real thing. You know, at first you think, oh, surely this can't be a thing. But it was this old English tradition that they brought with them. And, and it's just this idea that for the people who for the people who engage a sin eater, their, their ascent to heaven is going to make, be made lighter by this symbolic act. And there's actually a, a cake they bake called a corpse cake that's placed, you know, on the closed body of the person and then picked up and, and eaten after certain words were said. And so really strange to discover that it was real, interesting to see that it came from way back in time and that it still, that it still persists, that there are still people who fulfill this sort of role. Uh, in in these sort of remote mountain communities, and and so, is it still being practiced today? It, my understanding that was among some people that that is the case. Uh, you know, I didn't I didn't go too far uh, I didn't go too far into the research part of it because I was really so concerned with how to make it work on several different levels mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. So there are two stories there, Lost Girls and Inheritance. Let me return to uh, the title story, Lost Girls. There is a um, there's a twist in your um, revelation about the kidnapping that maybe some people uh, won't expect of the protagonist, that she is, uh, as I understand it, actually a bit um, envious of what the the young woman who's missing uh, is is possibly observing or uh, seeing. Uh, the, there are the uh, usual parental pleas on, um, I guess, television, radio, uh, newspaper, uh, and there's a. Tell me about the the what what her thoughts are about what she sees and her emotions that might be a little bit different uh, than you would expect. Yeah, absolutely. You know, her own parents are, are having have a contentious relationship and she feels largely ignored. So there is a touch of jealousy, as strange as that might be, as she watches uh, the parents of the girl who are kidnapped on the news mourning the girl's loss. And, you know, I think this comes from, I, in, in terms of my education as a writer, this idea that the best stories are are ones that are complicated, that contain contradictory sorts of impulses and emotions. So on the one hand, she's really desperate to honor the girl who was taken and does that quite effectively. On the other hand, she has these strange feelings, you know, of, of envy. And so I wanted to make that com- that character as complex as she could be. Um, and, and I think that's part, you know, part of what I've learned as I, as I've educated myself about writing is, you know, in a, including those contradictions, that the more complicated it is, uh, the deeper the story is, the more, uh, the more we've got uh, two or three things that a person wants, uh, the more interesting the telling of that tale becomes, you know, and just like in, in really good novels, you know, there's not just one thing happening. Typically, there are two or three things happening, all of which exert pressure on sort of the central storyline. And so that was really what I was going for there. I have to say that when I put together characters, I, I, I look to, um, I look to, I, 
what I really look for is to try to find a little twist, try to find something that's very, very unique to them that's actually often peculiar, um, you know. And so, uh, and so we've got a story in the collection like the story Religion where we have a, a, a young woman who's a virgin who's going off to a decoupage meeting and wanders into a breastfeeders league meeting. And because she's so lonely, she decides to stay. Uh, and, you know, I started that story with a, the premise that social groups can be like cults and that we can feel a lot of social pressure from the groups we belong to. But really, the story quickly became a story about loneliness and wanting to belong and the links to which someone will go to belong to a group and to feel a part of something bigger than themselves. Um, so, again, just that little twist with the character that they want unusual things, that they've seen unusual things and that they have different ways of dealing with what the world hands them. Ellen, um what writer or writers um, have you read that you try to emulate in some way, uh, or at least that you've learned from uh, during your MFA, uh, especially, who did you read and uh, what stories do you remember they taught you how to be the writer that you are today? You know, it's interesting and varied. And for a writer who considers herself a feminist, I have to say, you know, Hemingway has had a huge influence on on uh, uh, my use of my, my striving for an economy of language, you know, and and letting words and images carry the meaning rather than me ex explicating it all for everybody. So Hemingway has been a big a big influence for me. Also, I would say Flannery O'Connor. Um, my father was a writer. He wrote a couple of mysteries that were set in Louisville. He had a, a Louisville private eye that he created. They were published in the 80s and 90s. He was uh, grew up in Detroit, not very educated, educated himself. Uh, and he brought all kinds of literature into the house. And he would literally, when we were, my sisters and I, when we were young, he'd read us Flannery O'Connor stories <laughs> as bedtime stories. And these are Southern Gothic, scary, deep, with layers that have to do with religion and who we are to each other and violence. And, you know, so so in, in many ways, I feel like that, that ability to sort of walk unflinchingly into difficult situations in my stories is probably a legacy of having heard those Flannery O'Connor stories as a child, you know, long before I really knew how to, to sort them out. Um, for sure. Tell us about another um, a story from your collection. Oh gosh. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to look at my table of contents just to make sure I don't get this name wrong, but um it's called like I miss not being a ballerina. Uh -huh. So it's it's about a little girl whose uh, whose mom died young, and she didn't really know her mom. And she says that she kind of misses her mom in the same way that she misses not being a ballerina. Like she can dream about it, but it's not that close, and it's just a sort of a thing that's in her in her background. And it's about her best friend and their adventures together as kind of slightly chubby girls who go and hang off tree branches and eat candy together and watch television over the phone with one another. And what happens in the course of the story is that her best friend's mother 
uh, is facing a possible tough cancer diagnosis. And so um, she, she, she tries to make sense of the world in terms of the television shows she watches. And so it's a lot of bewitched and, and uh, I dream of Jeannie and where these women can pull these magic tricks. And, you know, by the end of the story, she really realizes that that's not the way it works and that she doesn't have the ability to do that herself. But if she did, she knows exactly what she'd wish for. So, mm. yeah. Well, the, the um, short stories are um, different lengths. Uh, there are some that, are shorter than others. Some are longer. What does a writer of short uh, fiction uh, look for as a a measure about the length of a story and when it concludes or when you might turn the page and start chapter two? What is the guide for you? Right. And, you know, I've had many people say that they want more often after they, they read some of these stories. They just want they want more of, of what's there. But for me, um, you know, I really view the short story as a form where you you get to decide where you jump in and where you where you jump out of it. Uh, and that we're, what I'm looking for is a really crystallized, precise slice of an experience. So, uh, I, you know, I like to get as much in about what the person's dealing with early on. And I like to show, you know, uh, the, the details that are that very specifically refer to where we're going. And to end, you know, I know I have an ending when, you know, you kind of have that peak moment or what many people will call the epiphany, that realization that people have, uh, you know, and oftentimes it's it's all come up with that phrase that ends the story and and I'll know that I'm there, even though, you know, I could have gone in and built in um, more given more detail in certain areas or built in more things. But but, um, you know, I, I value that precision. I value that economy of words. I want to let the reader themselves do a lot of the work of of interpreting this based on, you know, their understanding of the character. And I really seek those peak moments and that emotional punch that comes with finding just the right ending for the story. You said that you wrote uh, some of these stories over uh, a 10 year or maybe even more uh, span of, of time. Yeah. Well, one of your reviewers um, said this about, um, about Lost Girls. Um uh, Mars's impressive ability to hide devastating truths within seemingly small moments. Now, the devastating part of that, the devastating truths uh, might speak directly to that first story, but there are, are other examples, too, I'm sure. So what do you think uh, Jenny Offell was um, was re referring to when she wrote those uh, very uh, nice uh, words about lost girls. Yeah, yeah, I think she was talking about the the what we see over and over again in some of the stories, like um, like uh, uh, there's a story that I've got called Harvest about a woman who is getting older, and because she doesn't like the way she looks, she covers her mirrors, and then she's faced with a friend who's dealing with Alzheimer's, and she really, through trying to help him, discovers that her own sort of fears about appearances aren't as meaningful as 
uh, as she thought they were, you know. And so there's a moment when he is becoming a he's got Alzheimer's and he's he's becoming a little worried and trying to sort of find himself again. And she hearkens back to an experience they had as youngsters picking berries when he when she got stung by a bee and he put her finger in his mouth and she does that for him as a, as a callback, as if to say, this is who you are. This is who we are. This is who we were. This is who we still are. We're going to get grounded in, in this moment, you know? So I think it's, I think it's trying to find those actions or those moments that carry symbolic weight because of what you've been told earlier in the story. And and so I think a lot of these, you know, and I guess as a writing tip, you know, that would be what I'd say to people is to, to establish that kind of a callback, to put an image or uh, an anecdote in the story and find a way back to it in a way that, that by the end of the story, it's, it's even more meaningful than it was on first mention. So. I'm, I'm interested in hearing you talk a little, a little bit more about Lost Girls first being written as a dramatic monologue. I'm trying to to see you in your presentation um, and and how that came about before it was a story. Uh, it was a monologue. So tell me a little bit about that practice. Yeah. You know, I've written a couple of short, a very short 10-minute plays that have been published in journals or in and resources for for uh, young kids in theater who who want to perform ten minute plays and and so I think the thing that really made it a monologue was the fact that you know it's it's first person and it's all her voice and it's told in a very in very much a sort of now I'm telling you a story way um, you know that it wasn't there weren't you you really none of the other characters in the story really had a moment on canvas where they spoke it was all filtered through uh the first person point of view of the girl who experienced it and i think that's what really made it ideal as as a monologue but you know ultimately i recognized that it was you know, it was powerful enough a story that I could build in some scene setting, some world building around it and, and have it be a story. We're talking with Ellen Burkett Morris, who is one of uh, the authors featured at the 2021 Kentucky Book Festival, which will be held at the Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington, uh, Lexington Green, just off Nicholasville Road on November the 6th. There are activities beginning on November the 1st. Uh, with the uh, the noted uh, children's uh, writer and and uh, ambassador for young people, Jason Reynolds, all the way through November the sixth, uh, where Ellen and a number of other authors uh, will be available for uh, signing their books, uh, for talking with readers uh, uh, from across the state of Kentucky. There will be a number of uh, stage events uh, taking place. Uh, there will be writers' workshops. It's a full day of uh, Wonderful tribute to uh, Kentucky's rich literary uh, makeup, and uh, Ellen is one of those. And I'm going to talk to her a little bit more uh, about writing and uh, her poetry and a few other things right after we hear this word from our great underwriter, Spalding University. At Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing, Serious writers thrive with one-on-one -on -one faculty attention in a supportive community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, 
writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage, stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies, or travel to Paris for short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Ellen Burkett-Mars, uh, you, well, what came first, poetry or narrative? Poetry really came first for me. And, and you know, part I'm, 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 I'd like to do things incrementally. And I was really afraid to write because I was afraid to be bad at it. And you have to be bad before you can be good. And I started with poems and they seemed manageable and small and took workshops and classes, went to, went away to week-long writers' conferences, began to get them published in small literary journals, and began to build the confidence that way to, to move my way into uh, short stories. And short stories, I'd always read them. I'd always had them read to me. I mean, I knew the form very well. And, and of all the writing I do, I think it's the it's the most the one that comes most naturally to me, but definitely started with the poetry and built my confidence and moved on from there and have since uh, drafted a couple of novels um, which are currently being looked at. I've got one that's being looked at by independent publishers and one that's in the hands of three agents right now. So I have my fingers crossed on that. Well, good luck uh, with that. Let's uh, hope that works out. What do you tell your students about the the challenges of writing a good short story? Yeah, you know, I, I, I say I say one of the things that I, I mean, I talk about it in a couple different ways. One is the question of being encouraged and staying with it, you know, and the, and the many I do uh, author interviews for a site called AuthorLink. And many, many writers will say the difference between them and their classmates coming up is that they stayed with the process. They didn't quit. And that's how they built their skills and ultimately built their publications. Uh, and then when it comes to short stories, you know, I, I tell them things like if an idea has a lot of heat and energy for you, if it keeps your attention, chances are it's going to keep your reader's attention. And chances are it's going to be something that you can put together with a sense of passion and 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 really delve into and really make meaning out of it. So so look for those things that hook you up that won't let you go. Uh, and then, you know, I talked to them about um, I talked about them to them about writing and rewriting. You know, the fact that none of us has the none of us has writing that's just birthed perfect the first time around. And so. Get yourself a good writer's group. I've got two or three, actually, that I consult with and get feedback and let things cool off, give things a little time and come back to them and work them and rework them. Because there's there's never been a piece of writing that that I feel like I've made worse by returning to it and looking at it again. So, Oh, well, hopefully that is the... The case for a lot of the students that you instruct to uh, on your website, there is a, a, it's really a, a, a good website, Ellen Burkett Inc. But there are a lot of uh, reference uh, resource material there for anyone uh, looking around and you can click on it. And I just found one that I wanted you to uh, to talk about 
uh, just for a minute, five ways to create memorable characters. Now, I don't want you to go through all five, uh, choose one to two, uh, because um, a lot of uh, writers and writing, a lot of instructors will tell you that if your work, whether it's short story, novel, uh, doesn't have uh, good, solid, strong characters uh, built with the language that you choose, uh, you're going to not have a successful uh, writing. Um, what what are one or two ways that people can look to to build memorable characters? Yeah, absolutely. I'll be glad to talk to you about that. Um, so uh, one of the things I say is well, the, the first item, and I won't go through all of these, but the first item that I mentioned in this particular article is the thing she's carried. And so I talk a lot about objects as a way into character. And, uh, you know, that that so, something like having a waitress carry a volume of poetry in her pocket can give you a sense of what her inner life is outside of work. Or, you know, to have a character cradle her teddy bear as she sits alone, you get a sense of how lonely she is. And so oftentimes, objects can be a great way, you know, even if you don't know what you're doing at first, building a world around your character that's populated with a lot of very specific objects can help launch you into other aspects of their character and even aspects of plot. You know, if there's something around that, uh, that uh, you know, may, it may be a springboard for something to happen. Um, you know, one of the things I also say is that editors really like pop culture. So, um, you know, I've, I've in stories I've referenced, I've referenced things as diverse as Archie Bunker, uh, a, a video game called Dragon War, Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, Sonny and Cher, The Rolling Stones. Uh, you know, those kind of people, readers love pop culture references because it calls up their own memories and it helps them uh, be connected uh, to the story in a new kind of way. And then, uh, you know, I also say be bold, which is to say, you know, often I feel very compelled to save my characters from difficult times. I mean, you know, you grow to love them and you really don't want to put them through trouble. And yet you've got to, you know, you, you simply have to go there. There are times when you're going to um, make choices that make things so much harder for your character. But, you know, it will pay off because... It's going to be richer, it's going to be deeper, it's going to be more meaningful, and it's going to be a greater test of who they are and what they want. So as hard as that is, give yourself permission to fearlessly go into those horrible scenarios and write what you need to write. Um, I've had people call this collection harrowing. I've, I had my uh, my cousin's wife said, I don't know how you think that you could ask people to be gutted over and over <laughs> over again and it's just that like, was a compliment you took that as a compliment i took it as a compliment yeah. i'm like well yeah these you know yeah. i'm gonna get as real as i can with these stories yeah. and so yeah. yeah well um are you looking forward to the kentucky book festival and do you enjoy uh talking with readers i love that more than anything it's one of the best things and then hopefully some aspiring writers too you know and to be able to say to them if, if you want to do it do it 
go, you know, go boldly into that. Uh, and I have to say, you know, I have a lot of sentimental attachment to the Kentucky Book uh, Festival because my father, John Burkett, and my stepmother, Betty Lehman Receiver, frequently attended the festival and signed books there. And I remember going and seeing them behind their tables and thinking, someday I want to be a part of this. And so it's a bit of a dream come true. Well, um, you'll have a wonderful time. It is a great day. I have said for many years that uh, truly, I, and I really do mean this, it is one of the best days that Kentucky has to offer. So we're looking forward uh, to seeing you there and, and having uh, other writers surrounding you, stage presentations, writing workshops. It's really going to be a grand day, and I hope everyone will come out on November the 6th uh, to Joseph Beth, uh, booksellers at Lexington Green. So, uh, Ellen, thanks uh, again. Good luck uh, with the continuation of uh, the sale of Lost Girls. And if we don't see you before, we'll see you uh, at the book festival. Thank you so much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.